This reading is taken from the book of Galatians, uh, beginning at chapter 3, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Thanks be to God for his word. If you could analyse the genetic code of Jesus' DNA, would it be different to that of any other human being? If Jesus was God incarnate, God in human form, would you find a gene somewhere in his makeup that wasn't human but was divine instead? Kind of, you know, 99.9% human with a little bit of divine, just to kind of get the dual identity. In other words, when Jesus became incarnate, did God replace a little bit of his humanity with a little bit of divinity, and that's how God came to be in Christ? When the early church was trying to get its head round understanding who Jesus was, or is, and how he can be both human and divine, there were those who kind of went down that road. Who thought that Jesus was fully human in every respect, except... His human mind had been replaced with a divine mind. So in terms of who he thought he was, he knew he was God. And he thought and acted as God rather than as a human being. And you can see the logic of that way of thinking. It's a way of supposing that Jesus was fully human except at the very core of his being. That's where God took charge. Where God was in charge of his human body and the other faculties and enabled him to live the life he lived. So he was literally God in human form. In the 4th century, one of the early church fathers called Gregory of Nazianzus challenged this way of thinking and argued convincingly, because it became orthodoxy, that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. 
There weren't some things that Jesus did or thought or said as a human being and other bits he did or thought or said as God. In every part, in every way, Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. There was no aspect of his humanity that was diminished or altered by his divinity and no aspect of his divinity that was altered or diminished by his humanity. For that reason, Gregory insisted that Mary should be called the Mother of God. And that was a phrase that began to be used quite a lot in Christian circles at around this time. And that's one of the reasons why in the Catholic tradition Mary is, is kind of venerated as being the Mother of God. Jesus is God. In Mary's womb, the body of Jesus grew and developed as any normal human baby would. Jesus was born in the same way as other, any other human baby is born. He wasn't born human and then the divine bit added in afterwards. Jesus was God in the process of gestation and birth. Nor did his flesh kind of come down from heaven. When Jesus was born, Mary gave birth to God. That's the mystery of the Incarnation, why it took the church centuries to get its head round it, and why it still actually defies our comprehension in some ways. At no point in time was there any part of Jesus that wasn't fully human, and no part of him that wasn't fully divine. Gregory said, if you think that Jesus was a man without a, mind, without a human mind, then you are out of your own mind. To redeem every single part of our human nature, Jesus needed to assume every single part of our human nature. If there's any part of us that Jesus did not assume in his incarnation, that part of us is not healed or redeemed. So if Jesus didn't have a human mind, then our human mind remains unredeemed by God. It's only as Jesus unites every aspect of our humanity to his own divinity that we are saved. As Gregory says, if only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation or clothe the Saviour only with bones and nerves and the portraiture, portraiture of humanity. If he has a soul and yet is without a mind... How is he man? For man is not a mindless animal. Jesus completely one with us in every aspect of his identity. No part of him that was not human. No part of humanity that was not part of Jesus. When God entered our human condition in the person of his son Jesus Christ, he did so without holding back. It was a matter of 100% complete identification. I'm going to associate with humanity up to this point, but no further. Complete incarnation. So in, in Jesus, God was born. God had his nappy changed. God got hungry, thirsty, grew tired, bled when he cut himself experienced the full range of human emotion and temptation. God 
died a painful, agonising death upon the cross. God himself entering fully into human existence. That is the extent of his love for us, to go that far in identifying with us. He didn't quite do the whole Mrs. Gren bit because he didn't have any children physically. So there was no physical reproduction. But he had all the other characteristics of being a living being. Movement, respiration, sensitivity, growth, excretion, nutrition. In Jesus, God did all of that. And he did it because in love for us as human beings, he wanted to identify 100% with us. In our capacity for good and evil. Evil was an option for Jesus when he was tempted. He didn't give in to it, but he could have done. In our ability to form relationships with others. In our emotions, in our physicality. In our hopes and fears. Our weakness. Our mortality. Our death. On the cross he even becomes identified with our sinfulness. As Paul says, it was there that he became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The birth of Jesus is all about God becoming one of us. About God becoming one with us. So that by being one with him... We might be raised from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from humanity to having a share in the divine nature even. Irenaeus, one of the earliest Christian theologians, put it like this, Christ became what we are so that we might become what he is. You can see that kind of thinking expressed in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 5 where Paul says, God sent his son Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as his sons. It's a kind of sandwich. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's kind of an ABBA pattern. So the Son of God was born of woman so that all of us who are born of woman might become sons of God. The Son of God identifies with us in this mortal life so that by being identified with him we might receive eternal life. Paul complicates matters a bit by also talking about the Son of God being born under the law so that he might redeem those who are enslaved under the law and make them sons of God. He says that because even the Jews who had the law of God still stood in need of redemption. True, they were better off than the other nations who worshipped idols because they didn't know any better and as a result ended up being enslaved to those powers that Paul identifies as the elemental spirits of the universe. And it's not just figurative language that he's using here. Today, those who experiment with the occult or who make use of astrology or Ouija boards, or who seek guidance from the spirit world in other ways, people allow spiritual forces a measure of influence, even control, over their lives when they go down that path. But, if you put Jesus in charge of your life, 
That means you don't need to worry about what might happen to you because the alignment of planets spells bad news for you in this particular week because of your star sign. Jesus was born just as we are born to redeem us and set us free from any possible influence that such things might have over us because the point in time at which we were born. In Christ, your life is not governed or influenced by any spiritual force outside of your control because Jesus sets you free. The only person in charge of your life is the God who made you and who loves you and has purposed you for eternal life. That is our security and our hope and our freedom in Christ. The Jews did not believe that their lives were under the influence of any astrological or any other spiritual powers. They knew that they belonged to God and his law showed them how they should live their lives. But the law never really dealt with the problem of human sinfulness. If it did, it would have brought eternal life, but it never achieved that. It never delivered on that score because even those who kept the law were not exempt from human sin. It showed them how they ought to live. It served to identify and condemn sin, but it didn't give people the power to change the direction of their lives. So this is what you should do, and they saw what they should do, um, but 100% commitment to that. So for those who broke the commandment, the law functioned as a policeman and a jailer, putting people under restraint as a temporary measure until the coming of Christ who would set them free and give new life to all those who put their faith in him. The law was never intended to be God's final answer to the problem of human sinfulness. It was simply too ineffective. It didn't deliver the change of life that was required at a heart level. But it had a temporary role in terms of educating people about how they should live their lives. So even for those who, who kept the law, even then, you know, Paul compares them to being children placed under a guardian. A guardian placed in charge of a child who is too young to inherit a father's estate. Actually, he says... Though in principle that child might be the owner of the home in which he lives. In practice, his situation is not all that different from that of a slave because he has no authority. He's not really in charge of anything at all. And so although the Jews had the law, in actual fact they weren't really any better off than their Gentile counterparts who were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the universe. They might be children of God, but they didn't really have the freedom or the authority or the life that Jesus would bring. They were like children under a guardian. But Jesus came to set them free as well. The Son of God was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, to give them their full rights as adult children of God, inheriting all that belonged to them as God's children, which God promised to deliver and did deliver in his son Jesus Christ. How does that redemption work? How does Jesus redeem those who are under the law? Redemption is the language of the slave market. Redemption is the price that you pay to liberate a slave, to buy that slave his or her freedom. 
If you were captured as a prisoner of war in the ancient world, or if you ended up being sold into slavery because you fell into debt, you only hope, actually, unless you had a very generous master who would allow you to save up the price of your freedom over the years, and some did, but otherwise your only hope was for someone else to step in and buy your freedom. Actually to pay the asking price and set you free. When I sin, it's like I incur a debt that I can't pay back unless the person I've sinned against forgives me. When Jesus died, he stepped in and paid that debt on my behalf and set me free. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe and released me. Jesus releases those who are enslaved. He paid the debt, he paid the price. He liberates people through the payment of the gift of his own life dying in our place. Yet I'm not quite sure that 100% captures what Paul is on about here. If, If you drill down still further, the issue becomes, well, who bothers to go down to the marketplace or a debtor's prison and pay the price to redeem a slave and set them free? Who would care about you enough to do that? If you were enslaved, the only people who'd bother to set you free were your family or your friends. People who'd care enough about you. Had enough resources to pay the price of your liberation. Or maybe you were the subject of a ruler who actually cared about you and didn't want one of his subjects in prison and he would pay the price to set you free. But there had to be some connection actually for someone to say, this person matters enough to me for me to pay the price and release them. And the point is that in in the incarnation, Jesus becomes bone of your bone. He becomes flesh of your flesh. You become his brother, his sister, his family. Someone he cares passionately about. Someone he's willing to lay his life down for in order to release you. In taking upon himself your human nature, Jesus identifies himself as your brother. And for that reason he's prepared to go so far as to lay down his life for you so that you can go free. He, the son of God, becomes a slave, lays down his life upon the cross to redeem us. So that with him, we might be set free to become the children of the living God. I've got to admire Paul. I've I've just spent how long, 20 minutes or so, trying to explain what he says so succinctly. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption the sons. As all good sayings are, it is simple, yet it is immensely profound. Who are you? Why are you here? What is the point of your life? If we don't know the answers to these questions, we can feel lost, as indeed we are. But Jesus provides the answer. You, you are a child of God. 
You are here because God made you and God loves you. Your social identity doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, whether you're Jew or Greek or English or from abroad, whatever country you come from, you're a son of God. Doesn't matter whether you're slave or free. Doesn't matter about your social status, your upbringing, your education, your income, your social level. You're a child of God. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You're a child of God in Christ Jesus. That is our identity. Means we can all lift our heads high. Because Jesus calls us his brother. And God calls himself our father. When that relationship is established, which it is through Jesus becoming one of us, whatever else we are, whoever else we might be, we are children of God. And that realisation is a liberating discovery. The security we need to make the most of life comes from trusting in his infinite love for us. And building relationships marked with love and trust and forgiveness with others who place these values at the centre of their lives. That's what church is supposed to be all about, by the way. And it's possible. It's possible for each and every one of us. Because when Jesus entered the world, he did so so that he could be one with you. Each of you, here and now, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, whatever anybody else might have said about you in the past, Jesus came to be one with you, to redeem your life and make you a child of God and assure you that you belong to him for eternity. That's the good news. That's why Jesus came. With the invitation that for us to trust in him and give our lives to him so that he can keep us in his love and security forever. That's why Jesus' gift to you this Christmas is nothing less than the gift of himself. And that's why the gift he longs for from each one of us most of all is the gift of ourselves given back to him in a relationship of love and trust. If you do give your life to him, however broken or damaged you feel it might be, you can be sure that he will treasure that gift for eternity. That he will keep your life in his heart forever. Because that's how much you mean To him. The Son of God became one with us, one of us, here and now, so that we can be one with him forever. Thanks be to God. Let's spend a moment in quiet. Lord, sometimes we catch glimpses of your truth and then it seems to disappear out of our grasp again and we we feel we can't understand it. 
thank you, it doesn't depend upon our understanding. It's all a matter of your grace. And where our understanding gives out, Lord, just just take hold of us and enable us to trust you. To trust you for what we can understand and what we can't understand. Thank you that whether we understand or not, you love us anyway. Help us to trust in your love. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming one of us, one with us. You gave your life for us. You give your life to us. Help us to live our lives for you. Here and now. In the confidence that we will share life with you for eternity. Amen.